The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at various apparent, supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you, as a listener, have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, 
answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. In the episodes to date, we have examined and answered 41 questions regarding supposed Bible contradictions from our old friend, Mr. Ash, the atheist, skeptic, and humanist. In this episode, we continue to help Mr. Ash with his various questions regarding the veracity and consistency of God's Word, the Bible. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Do Christians sin or not? In order to concoct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Quote, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Unquote. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Quote, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Unquote. Mr. Ash then compares these to the following verses for his supposed contradiction. Job chapter 1, verse 1, quote, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feareth God and eschewed evil, unquote. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, quote, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God, unquote. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, quote, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him, unquote. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, quote, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God, unquote. And finally, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, quote, We know that Whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not." Unquote. From all of this, Mr. Ash arrives at a logic meltdown where he cannot reconcile whether all peoples are sinners or whether Christians are the exception to the rule. Now, before we proceed to address these series of contradictions, Mr. Ash asserts that this, 
and the following contradictions are not mere trivial matters, but are in fact, quote, fundamental attacks on the Christian message, unquote. This being the case, let's accept the challenge applying our already well-established rules of hermeneutics and see where indeed we in fact stand. Beginning with Romans chapter 3, a topical survey of the chapter reveals that Paul is comparing and contrasting righteousness and justification based upon each person's actual obedience to God's law on their own merits versus each person's righteousness and justification based upon their faith standing in Jesus Christ, verse 22. Romans 3, verses 9 through 10, as well as verse 23, quoted above, all agree that according to the law alone, apart from Christ, all I Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, verse 9. There is none righteous, no, not one, verse 10. None understands, none seek after God, verse 11. We have all gone out of the way, we are altogether unprofitable, verse 12. Our throat is an open grave. We have deceit on our tongues, and we have poison on our lips, verse 13. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, verse 14. Our feet are swift to shed blood, verse 15. Destruction and misery are our ways, verse 16. We don't know the way of peace, verse 17. We have no fear and awe of God in our eyes, verse 18. Verse 19 is a logical rear-view mirror commentary on the results of partaking on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, quote, Now, we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God, unquote. In this case, the law, whether it be the Ten Commandments or any of God's laws, statutes, or ordinances, are nothing more than God's revelation of the details of what the knowledge of good and evil are relative to God's nature and attributes which are perfect. Remember, Satan lied saying that by mankind taking his faith off God and his covering grace which God gave to mankind at creation, that man could or would be just like God. What Satan failed to mention is that it is impossible to be like God or to please God 
without having faith and trust in God who provides us with his likeness as a free gift on the basis of that trust and faith in him alone. Thus, the moment mankind took his faith off God and attempted to place our own trust in our own efforts apart from God, we were immediately doomed to failure. As verse 19 says, the law, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, only gives us a clearer understanding of just how far removed we are from the image of God's perfection. This is, in fact, what Paul also concludes in verse 20. Quote, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, unquote. Then, praise be to God alone, we have a wonderful solution provided by God, which begins in verse 21 and 22. Quote, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, unquote. So, in other words, there is another way to be righteous and justified in the eyes of God. In this case, it is through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness and just nature and character imputed to those who trust and believe in him. This is exactly what Mr. Ash misses, which he himself could find if perhaps he were to finish verse 23 with verse 24, 25, and 26, which are all, in fact, one thought and one truth separated only by semicolons and colons. Quote, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, unquote. Verse 23, quote, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, unquote. Verse 24, quote, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, unquote, verse 25. Quote, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, unquote, verse 26. Moving on, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, which says, quote, 
For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, unquote. Once again, it should be remembered that the genre of Ecclesiastes is that of wisdom literature. In particular, as stated before, the key to understanding Ecclesiastes is found in the oft-repeated idiom, quote, under the sun, unquote, which is simply a Jewish idiom meaning to look at life apart from or without God. This being the case, if we look at the spiritual and moral status of mankind according to God's perspective and consider mankind's said status without or apart from God, then the reality God sees is, quote, There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, unquote. Well, this is in complete agreement with what we have studied in Romans chapter 3. Okay, so now we come to Job chapter 1, verse 1, which says, quote, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Unquote. Now, of course, here Mr. Ash would like to observe superficially that because Romans 3 says that, quote, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, unquote, and Job chapter 1, verse 1, says that Job was quote-unquote perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil, that there is an insurmountable contradiction here. However, it should be remembered that Romans 3 is in fact saying that apart from God, all have sinned. Apart from God, there is none that doeth good. Apart from God, all have fallen short of God's glory. The same is true of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. However, when we come to Job, the character named Job was not I repeat, not apart from God. Job, in fact, had faith and trust in God, which is the quintessential moral and message of the entire book of Job. Because Job had an abiding faith, trust relationship with God, he, like Abraham, could have his faith counted as righteousness. Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 concurs saying, quote, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, unquote. So, Job was not morally, ethically, or intrinsically righteous and perfect as God on his own, any more than Abraham was. 
but both had God's righteousness imputed to them as a gift based upon their respective faith and trust in God. The same can be said of Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, which says, quote, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God, unquote. So, here again, to begin with, Mr. Ash conveniently omits verse 8, immediately proceeding, which says, quote, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, unquote. The word grace means unmerited favor. In other words, Noah did not earn his quote-unquote perfection based upon living according to the law or being sinless on his own. Noah, like in every other case, like Job, like Abraham, trusted and believed God, and as a result, God gave them something, i.e. grace, that they did not deserve, which was righteousness imputed to them for their faith. Additionally, the word quote-unquote perfect has no connection to the law here. The word simply means quote, complete or whole, unquote, and it has nothing to do with being partially or otherwise sinless on their own. If there is something quote-unquote perfect, it is their faith and trust, not their performance of the law apart from God. Following this, Mr. Ash then confounds and conflates what sin is and how it is defined biblically by concluding, based upon the following verses, that Christians don't sin. In this case, we look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, which says, quote, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him, unquote. Here, we in fact have a conditional axiom confirming and agreeing with Romans chapter 3 verses 21 and 22. Simply stated, if so be by God's grace we have been drawn to a sincere and abiding relationship of faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work, then Christ's propitiatory sacrifice provides us with a total covering of all our sins and trespasses. We are justified in God's eyes and have Christ's righteousness imputed to us while Christ was punished for our sins and trespasses. Essentially, when God looks at us, 
he sees his son Jesus Christ and his perfection, provided that we are in fact in Christ via a relationship born of faith. Hence, in a judicial sense, God does not see our sin, or better stated, our sin is covered by virtue of our relationship with Christ. This is not to say that we do not have sin, but rather that whatever sin we had or have is forgiven and covered by Christ's shed blood and our relationship with him. On the other side of this axiom, we have the reality that when God looks at any human, if God sees sin, which is defined as separation or an absence of a relationship with him or a condition of being fallen short by virtue of said lack of relationship, then the reality is that we have not seen God, nor do we know him. The confusion arises for Mr. Ash and others because they labor under the deception that any human can earn or achieve sinless perfection in this life. Before we know God or have a faith relationship in Christ, we are sinners by nature, separated from God without excuse. What we can do is, with God's sovereign grace, we can exercise faith and trust in God and Christ's finished work, which, if sincere, God will then impute Christ's righteousness to our account and we are fully justified. Once we know Christ, we still have our old nature capable of sin, but we now have a new nature, the mind of Christ, wherein we now are progressively conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. This process is called sanctification. During the process of sanctification, while we will, if sincere, have the desire to progress and please God, we will also, at times, stumble, make mistakes, commit sins and or trespasses which displease God. But there is a complete and polarized difference between sin, defined as being separated from God due to an unregenerate and rebellious nature, and having a relationship with God via trust and faith in Christ, despite the fact that at some times we fall prey to temptation or fleshly failure. Paul discusses the reality of this dynamic tension between the old nature of the flesh and the new nature of Christ in Romans chapter 7, verse 21 
through 25. Quote, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin." Unquote. The same is true of the next two examples of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 verse 9 says, quote, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 1 John chapter 5 verse 18 says, quote, We know whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. Unquote. So, in all three examples, we see the same axiomatic truth. The quote-unquote sin that we are incapable of in these verses has to do with a true and sincere relationship with God. At its essence, sin is separation from God. Separation of fellowship with God because we do not know God. However, if in fact we know have a relationship and fellowship with God, then we cannot at the same time be separated from God because of sin. The quote-unquote sin does not have to do with those actions or inactions which we commit or omit due to our old nature which at times may catch us. This is not only a problem for Mr. Ash, but has also taken root in many aspects of those in the body of Christ, also called the church itself. Essentially, many labor under the lie that becoming a true Christian means that you will never sin again, that you are now able to live perfectly and without ever making mistakes, error, or violation of the law. And Predictably, any time Mr. Ash sees what he believes to be an act or omission of quote-unquote sin, then the supposed deduction must be that either the person is not truly a Christian, or that Christian living is not possible and God doesn't really exist. Because if it was, there would be people who are able to never sin. But here, Mr. Ash has created his own false equivocation because the Bible never teaches that sinless perfection is possible. Neither the Bible nor God 
ever teach that having a relationship with Jesus Christ means anything other than for the present, we each and all are sinners who stand forgiven by Christ and who have his righteousness applied to our account, which has been and remains bankrupt were it not for his satisfactory deposit kept in account by his grace through an abiding relationship with him. Lastly, and doubtlessly saddest of all, is Mr. Ash's confusion on Romans chapter 5, verse 19, which says, quote, For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous." Unquote. Here, Mr. Ash understands this verse to mean that Jesus saves us all regardless, and that no belief or faith is necessary, and that we are all going to heaven. Unfortunately, the above verse does not say, quote, all will be made righteous, unquote. It says, quote, many will be made righteous, unquote. In the long run, while Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all, the Bible teaches that his sacrifice is efficient only for some. The efficiency is determined by God's sovereign grace and election, and somewhere within God's economy, man is still held responsible for his part. Where the two intersect can only be determined in eternity by God's perfect counsel alone. In an abundance of caution, in order to help Mr. Ash, perhaps an analogy here would help. Let's assume we have a hypothetical person who is a serial pathological criminal whose nature and personality is bent on breaking every law that there is. In this case, the law and its various do's and don'ts are the benchmark, the target, which detail what being a lawful, decent, moral person looks like. The law is perfect and good, but the criminal does not have the capacity to adhere to the law. Next, we have a perfect, righteous, and just judge who enforces the law. This judge looks at the criminal and compares his behavior to the law and finds the person guilty on all counts. Because the penalty for breaking the law is death, the judge justly sentences the man to death. At this point, it would be immaterial that the criminal gave to the poor, kissed babies, rescued puppies, or loved his wife. The issue is simply that he broke the law repeatedly. Next, we also assume that in addition to perfect justice and righteousness, our judge also has 
perfect mercy and love. In order to demonstrate said mercy and love, our judge, having pronounced death, steps down from the bench and despite never having broken the law and being perfect, the judge declares that he will legally take the penalty on behalf of the criminal and be executed as required by the law, while the criminal will now be given the judge's royal robes and his sentence will be completely absolved and acquitted of all charges. The only stipulation is that the criminal must believe, trust, and have faith that the judge's character, righteousness, and justice are sufficient and efficient to pay the criminal's debt. In the event that all the criteria are met, the criminal would now be free to leave the courtroom wearing the judge's robe and having no criminal record whatsoever. Now, in so far as the court is concerned, when the court looks at the man, the man who was a criminal is now seen as the judge being righteous and perfect. In our analogy, the criminal still retains his old nature. He wants to steal. He wants to rob. He wants to uh, do whatever criminal acts that are his nature. While all of his criminal conduct has been purged, his nature is still bent on committing crime. Well, the judge knows and foresees this. And in order to deal with this, the judge takes his own very nature, which is bent on following the law, and implants that nature within the criminal. The criminal now has a dual nature, which wars against each other. The new nature is destined to be victorious over the old nature, even though the old nature will at times rear its head. At this point, and moving forward, insofar as the court is concerned, at whatever point the court looks at the criminal, all they see is the judge's perfect and righteous nature covering any criminal acts that the person committed or omitted, while the jury, the world, and the criminal himself may see acts or omissions of the law, past or present, provided the criminal maintains a relationship of faith and trusts in the judge's imputed righteousness, the only thing that matters is what the judge and the court sees which is, in this case, the judge's righteous perfection. As we conclude, what is abundantly clear here is that all of the above information regarding the theology of sin, justification, sanctification, was manifestly crystal clear in the teachings of the New Testament epistles available as early as the first century. Today, it is still easily possible, assuming one cares, 
to look and to find these Reformed truths being taught verse by verse in many churches around the world. The only excuse for not understanding this would be that Mr. Ash is bound by a spirit of rebellion. Additionally, Mr. Ash lacks discernment or does not want to understand the truth. Instead of this issue being a fundamental attack on the Christian message, Mr. Ash's assessment provides a clear example of a fundamental attack on Mr. Ash's ability or desire to do proper research and be honest about the results. So, yes, Christians do sin in the sense that they stumble, they make mistakes, they are tempted by their old nature to do things which are not pleasing or glorifying to God. But Christians are Christians because they have an abiding, sincere faith relationship with Jesus Christ who covers all existing sin and who freely provides his righteousness to our account while taking our existing sin upon himself. Christ gives us a new nature which provides us with the desire and the power to progressively conquer sin and the flesh and to be increasingly conformed to the image and nature of Christ. As Paul concludes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, quote, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, unquote. So, once again, using a proper biblical world and life view, there is no contradiction here, only an inability or unwillingness for Mr. Ash to understand what the basic message of the gospel is, along with the unregenerate mind of Mr. Ash, who must at all costs deny God in order to justify himself. In all to date in this series, we have in each case serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 42 and a myriad of remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability 
or unwillingness to do his research coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The, the